Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken. And this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. Yeah. And here we are with nothing better to do. Yeah. Before we get started, I wanted to make a point. The panel that the governor appointed on the Lewiston shootings is meeting daily. And this week they had families of the victims speak in front of them. Mm -hmm. I saw it on the news. It's always kind of annoyed me in a way that whenever there's some big thing that happens like a shooting or something else or a cop shooting, cop gets shot, all the cops everywhere rush to the scene, whether anyone tells them to or not, right? And there's this big clusterfuck of cops, some I'm sure who are useful, but it's like every cop who possibly can just goes. So the families were speaking before the panel this week about how nobody told them what was going on. They couldn't get any information out of anybody. All sorts of issues they had. Nobody was talking to them. There were several people in the deaf community who were killed. There was no deaf interpreter there to help them. So they had no clue. The families of the victims were basically treated like they didn't matter. My thing is, If every fucking cop in the state is going to rush to the scene of something, whether they wanted to or not, there should be some strategy where some of these guys who are there just to get in on the action can actually fucking help families and stuff. It's one of the things that's always annoyed me because I've seen it as a journalist over 40 years. They all rush to the scene. They all want to be part of the action. Like, look at like that documentary about the Boston bombing when they, you know, the marathon bombing when they found the kid in Waltham and... Uh, or Watertown, or wherever he was. There's no coordination about, okay, what can all you extra guys do to help? Just imagine if some of those cops had actually been able to help the families be liaisons, get information for them, and that kind of thing. It's just something that's always bugged me. Like, they all want to get in on the action, but useful things that can be done. Yeah, they like, don't want to do things that are... Right, and uh, it just That's what they have the lady cops for. Yeah, that's right. But no, but it just struck me watching that hearing that something that if you look at photos, you know, there's hundreds of cop cars all with their yeah. lights flashing. and But all these poor people who are just trying to. And I know and there wasn't there was information people couldn't necessarily get and stuff. But don't tell me if they had dedicated liaisons, police liaisons. They couldn't have helped guide people, get people to the right place, find a deaf interpreter. Or just have somebody that's talking to you. Right. Can you imagine? You don't know whether someone is dead or alive. Right. You don't know what the hell's going on. And there's nobody talking to them or helping them or giving them information. And yeah, every cop in the state has to be there with their lights flashing. And I've been to a few scenes where there's been a heavy police presence and a lot of them end up just standing around doing nothing. And I'm not saying that that's every cop and blah, 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 you know, all that stuff, but they all go. I know that people are like, oh, we never thought it would happen here, blah, blah, blah. But I'm Mm -hmm. assuming that there are preparation, like schools have them. I'm assuming every public safety entity has a plan in place in case something like this happens. But it seems to me a lot of times part of the plan is not this person or these people this your job is going to be to deal with the f- families of right. the victims and that doesn't seem to be something that people consider that's important especially if it's something where 
like in Uvalde where it was ongoing and the parents were trying to go in there. Yes. You need someone to talk. You need you need to deal with the family members because they're going to want to do something. Right. I, I think it's the last priority or the last thing they think of. Yeah. That's why you need lady cop. More lady cops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although the lady cops have to take orders from the man cops. So, but they would be designated to do stuff like that because that's they lady always work. are. Yeah. yeah. On that note, should I start my story? Yes. And, and, there were, and you promised everyone I did. That you I'm were gonna, gonna do this. bring that up. Don't steal my thunder. I'm sorry. I just want to note there were no lady cops involved in this. Mm. If you listened to our last episode, and if you didn't, why the hell not? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> you, you'll remember our interest was piqued by the case of Ambrosia Fagre and Kadhar Bailey who were shot by police in Vassalboro, Maine, on February 10th, 2017. I said I'd look into it, as Becky just mentioned, and so I have. My sources for this are the Morning Sentinel of Waterville and Kennebec Journal of Augusta, both of which reported on this, but they basically, you know, have the same content. Their stories also appeared in the Portland Press-Herald. The Bangor Daily News, which actually did a much better and more thorough job covering it than those two papers. A few court case documents and the Attorney General's Deadly Force Report. I don't think there's anything else, but if there is, I'll note it when I say it. The story starts, as many such stories do, with sketchy information in a newspaper report. The Kennebec Journal of Morning Sentinel, Augusta, and Waterville, Maine's newspapers reported on February 11, 2017, that two people had been shot by the police in Vassalboro, a town along the east side of the Kennebec River in between Augusta and Waterville. A man was dead and a woman had been taken to, quote-unquote, a local hospital. Mm. I hate it when they do that. Just say, it's not like there's that many fucking hospitals in Maine. According to Steve McCausland, spokesman for the Maine Department of Public Safety. It turned out she was actually taken to Maine Medical Center in Portland, so not local. Mm. I mean, maybe originally she would have gone to Maine General in Augusta, which is right near there, but... Is um, there one in Waterville anymore? No. 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 Now, when they opened the big main general in 2013 in, in North Augusta, the one in Waterville, like, it does urgent care and workers' oh, yeah. stuff, the old Thayer, but... um. Anyway, the incident happened on Arnold Road in Vassalboro around 5 p.m. While information on what led to the shooting was not available, scanner traffic on Friday evening before the shooting indicated that police were looking for a man who'd stolen a truck during an armed robbery, the story said. McCausland said that the state attorney general's office would be investigating since it was an officer-involved shooting. What the story didn't say, because they had no way of knowing, was that Kadhar Bailey, 25 of Gardner, the man who was shot, and Ambrosia Fagre, 18, of Oakland, who died the day after she was shot, would be the second and third people of 13 shot by Maine law enforcement officers in 2017. Oh, they were busy. Yeah, they were. Nine of whom died. Mm. But more on that later. A day after the first story, Ambrosia Fagre had died, as I said, and reporters knew a lot more about what had happened, at least from one side of the story. The headline in the Morning Sentinel and Kennebec Journal was Golf Pro Eluded Death and Burglary. A hmm. little sub-headline said, Second Suspect Dies After Shooting in Vassalboro Incident. That's the main, weird. 
And on the main Sunday telegram, the Portland Press-Herald Sunday paper ran the story with an equally ludicrous headline, Golf icon Dickie Brown target a burglary. With the subhead, he's recovering after the incident at his Vassalboro home, which preceded a police shooting that killed two people, including the burglary <laughs> suspect. Okay. If right. If you read the Portland papers, you're hearing about this for the first time, and your reaction might be, wait, two people were shot and killed? I mean, talk about burying the lead. Golf pro? I Dickie know. Brown, That's so weird. Well, that kind of tells the tale of police shootings in Maine in general, and this one in particular, doesn't it? Two people killed, but the fact that golf icon or golf legend, as the KJ and Sentinel insist on calling him throughout their stories, Dickie Brown, who was the target of the home invasion, gets the headline. Brown, who's described in, as I said, various KJ and Sentinel articles, as this story unfolds as a golf icon or golf legend, his name is not mentioned without one of those adjectives in front of it, didn't want to talk to reporter Doug Harlow for that first story. Eh. But his son, Taylor, I'm sure named after the golf equipment company, was happy <laughs> to. Richard Dickey, or Dick Brown, is a Maine golfer who was inducted into the Maine Golf Hall of Fame in 2013. He and his family own Natanis Golf Course in Vassalboro, and he lives on Fairway Drive, a road that's about half a mile long that goes from Weber Pond Road in Vassalboro down to Weber Pond, and borders the golf course. Brown is part of a big golfing family. He's the head golf pro at Natanis and was the fourth member of his family to be named to the Golf Hall of Fame, the main Golf Hall of Fame. His father, Paul, was named in 2006, and brothers James and Robert were both named in 2008. Besides being a golf pro, Dick Brown is director or was director of Maine's high school championships, golf championships for more than 20 years, which is played at Natanis, and he coached high school golf at Winslow High School. If you're wondering, Natanis was one of the Wabanaki guides of the Benedict Arnold action to Quebec. The other ah. was Sabatis. A lot oh, of women... I didn't know that. Yeah. The golf course has a lot of Wabanaki appropriation, but that's a story for another day and has nothing to do with this story. Mm. When the chain of events that would lead to Ambrosia Fagre and Kudhar Bailey being shot unfolded, Dick Brown was 57 years old. As I said, he didn't want to talk to the press about what happened, but... His son, Taylor, who I think was 32 at the time, was happy to. Here's what Taylor said happened on February 10th, 2017. Dick Brown was home that Friday afternoon when a man, Cadhar Bailey, we know now, although he didn't know at the time, knocked on his door and offered to shovel his roof for $100. Those of you who live in less snowy climates may not realize that snow piled up on a roof can cause issues, so people often shovel their roofs Though using a roof rake and getting the first few feet near the edges off is a better option. I know because I researched it for the book I'm writing. Oh. Brown, anyway, Brown said no thanks, and the guy went away. Or so he thought. Uh-huh. A little while later, he heard noise coming from his garage, which was attached to the house. He went in to see what was going on, and Bailey was in there rummaging around. Brown asked him what he was doing. According to Taylor Brown... At that point, the guy pulled a gun on him and took him into the home and tied him up and put him down in the basement. It was some type of handgun. He was tied with his hands behind his back, unquote. Brown said Bailey, again, they didn't know his name was Bailey, but it's easier to call him that than to keep saying the man, told Dick Brown not to look at him, so he tried not to because the guy had a gun. Taylor said he thought that the guy was going to just kill him. 
He was feeling very fortunate that he didn't kill him. According to Taylor Brown, Bailey ransacked the home for about three hours. Then he stole Brown's Toyota Tacoma pick. I know that's a long time to ransack a home. And then he stole Brown's Toyota Tacoma pickup truck and sped away. The Attorney General's report from a year later also said Bailey tied Dick Brown's hands and feet, rolled or kicked him into the basement, and during the ransacking of the house, returned at times to check on him and tell him he was going to kill him. Taylor Brown told the Morning Sentinel that Dick Brown was shaken up and a little sore, but otherwise okay. He also said, I'm very happy that he's okay and that they got the guy. Which I'm wondering if we can take as he's happy that Cadhar Bailey was killed. Maybe not. And I'm not saying that Bailey obviously shouldn't have been prosecuted for what he did. And that I'm sure it was a terrifying and life-altering experience for Dick Brown. But the attitude of the KJ Sentinel stories throughout this seems to be that the two kids who were killed were not human beings and got what was coming to them. And it's irritating. The police version of events emerged in bits and pieces. Again, remember, this is completely from their point of view, so they're not a totally reliable narrator, especially when they have to cover their butts about shooting two people fatally, one of them an 18-year-old girl who was just sitting in a truck and was not armed. As we mentioned last episode in Maine, police don't wear body cameras, and the two two people who could tell their side of the story are dead. There are also some holes that probably will never get filled. To try to lessen the confusion, I've avoided using the initial newspaper reports for the most part, which are fuzzy and confusing and have some false information. I use the final version of events from a March 2020 court decision and a January 2021 court decision and the Attorney General's report on the shooting. Well, in their opinions, those two court decisions, they're both judges' opinions, but they get their information about what happened again from the police reports and from, I mean, every level of this, there's one side telling the story. And just as you'll see, just because something's in a court document doesn't mean it's not sketchy in some ways. Anyway, this is the official narrative of what happened. The afternoon of February 10th, 2017, Scott Ireland, a Maine State Police Lieutenant, was driving home from work down Arnold Road, which parallels Fairway Drive in Vassalboro. Like Fairway, it runs from Weber Pond Road down to Weber Pond. Unlike Fairway, it's a narrow dirt road about the width of one car lane. There's about half a dozen homes on Arnold, most of them down at the end near the lake. It's heavily wooded between Weber Pond Road and Weber Pond. The homes on Fairway are separated from Arnold by a grove of woods. The day before, there had been a big snowstorm across Maine that had dumped about a foot of snow on Vassalboro, and that was on top of the snow that had already fallen that winter. So the snowbanks on the sides of Arnold Road would have been high, making the road narrower and hemming it in. Ireland was, quote-unquote, approached by a neighbor I'm assuming when he pulled into his driveway, but no document gives details, who told him that there was a suspicious Dodge Durango parked on Arnold Road near the neighbor's property. And a Dodge Durango is a fairly large SUV. In Maine, in this kind of neighborhood, in the off-season of February particularly, that likely meant someone was up to no good and possibly burglarizing seasonal camps. There's no reason a car that nobody recognized parked on that road. Ireland, 
who was driving a police cruiser, not clear if it was marked or unmarked. And that's one interesting point that becomes important later. As much as all the reports focus on the Dodge Durango and making sure you know it's a Dodge Durango, you never really find out what kind of car Ireland was driving or the other police were driving. It says cruisers and stuff. My familiarity with state police is almost all of them now drive those big Ford Crown Crown Vic SUVs. Crown Victoria. Not the Crown Vic sedans, but big Crown Vic SUVs that are just as sturdy and big and powerful as a Dodge Durango. So keep that in mind. Ireland was in civilian clothes, but he put on his main state police jacket and his gun belt. He drove to the neighbor's house where he saw the Durango backed into a turnaround. For the uninitiated, these narrow roads often have turnarounds or pullouts, so you can get out of the way of somebody coming the other way and also turn around without having to do it in if there's no driveways or anything. Usually they're just a patch of dirt. It's interesting that there was a clear turnaround after the foot of snow that had fallen the day before and into the night, but my guess is it's possibly maybe a plow had turned around. Yeah. Anyway, there are no photos of that. No news crews went to this thing, even though it was on the scanner. No photographers or reporters went out there. Ireland could see a woman in the passenger seat slumped over. He would later say that since the Durango was running, he was concerned she may have succumbed to carbon monoxide poisoning. He banged on the window and she woke up. He asked her to get out of the Durango. Apparently she didn't because there's no other ever mentioned. She never gets out of the car. Ireland said she wasn't suffering from CO poisoning, but was quote unquote out of it. And though nobody comes right out and says it, the implication throughout this is that she was heavily on drugs. My guess would be heroin from the way she's described. I don't know that. I'm not to say that she wasn't, but how would you, I wouldn't know the difference. Someone could be on drugs or they could be, you know, suffering from carbon monoxide poisoning. I wouldn't know. Yeah. Although if she were, her face would have been red. Um, Oh, that's true. As you would have read about in my novel, Bad News Travels Fast. I forgot. But anyway, a woman... Ambrosia Fagre, according to Ireland, quote, was initially unable or unwilling to explain why she was there or where the driver of the Durango had gone. He suspected she and her companion were breaking into homes on Arnold Road based on footprints in the snow that led to nearby houses. Well, she wasn't doing it. Sherlock Holmes, right. I know, but she has to be, as we go on, you'll see, she has to be villainized in this to make the shooting, to make the, everybody feel good about the fact that she ended up dead. Oh. Ireland got on his police radio and told them what was up and that he suspected that the couple was breaking into houses. And then he continued to question Amber. And actually, that's what I'm going to call her. Her real name's Amber Ray. I don't know if she changed it to Ambrosia or called herself Ambrosia. A lot of stories have Ambrosia, then Amber in quotes. But her legal name is Amber Ray. Fag Ray. Hmm. Everybody calls her Amber. Her friends and family do, and it's easier than saying Ambrosia, so that's what I'm going to call Okay. Ireland said Amber ultimately admitted that the driver was breaking into residences. And I want to point out here that this would be a great example of why a body cam would come in handy. He's talking to this young woman, and she apparently told him this. It's all his account. 
And let's say that this didn't end up with Amber and Kedar dead, but just arrested for breaking in and et cetera, it would have greatly benefited the cops to have her talking about it on a video. I guess the cops don't see it that way for some reason. (laughs) And I just can't fathom why they, that they don't want the way they talk to people. Like I said, Mr. Kidders, he wears his all the time. And here's another issue we've talked about in other episodes. Various documents say police later determined Kedhar Bailey was Amber's boyfriend, but he was not in any way, shape, or form. Oh, that's interesting. The Attorney General's report says something that was repeated later in the press that Amber, quote, alternately told officers, unquote, because several end up talking to her this evening, that her boyfriend was named Nick Bryan and Hunter, and she didn't know his last name, but he lived somewhere in an apartment in Augusta. I think this was deliberately made confusing by the cops to make her look confused out of it and bad. She actually did have a boyfriend, a new one, Nick Penny, who lived in Augusta in an apartment. She'd recently broken up with a guy named Brian. Cadhart, as I said, was not her boyfriend, but I can see the cops asking her various questions and her being out of it, to quote Ireland, her getting confused. Okay, so what's your boyfriend's name? Referring to Cadhart. Brian, no way, Nick, because she had broken up with Brian yes. and just started going out with Nick. Not even talking about Kadhar because they're asking her about her boyfriend. Then what's the last name of the guy breaking into houses? I don't know his last name. I don't hmm. know him. You know, you get it? So that's how yeah. I see the conversation going on. There's a variety of cops who end up talking to her. I think they assumed he was her boyfriend. And then they used the fact, like, the woman who was shot in the gravel pit, remember how they said in that episode you did, they said yes. they used that. They thought there was some, yes. I think they were making they assumptions, listen. not listening and using language that maybe even not to deliberately confuse her since they assumed he was her boyfriend. And then they asked her about her boyfriend and she's like, oh, they're asking me about my boyfriend. Yeah. And th- oh, that's Nick, you know, whatever. There are three accounts of how police learned of the attack on Dick Brown. And I'm going to recount them to show how police official reports are like a game of telephone. All of these cite their account because they're all in official documents as undisputed facts, yet they are all different. In the March 2018 report on the shootings, it says Ireland noticed footsteps from the Durango that were going to Dick Brown's house. And since Ireland lived right there, he must have known Dick Brown and knew where his house was. Keep in mind, though, that Ireland was on Arnold Road and Brown's house was on Fairway, so there were woods in between. And later accounts of where the Durango is show that you can't see Brown's house from it. I would have to see a diagram or something, but to see footsteps going from the Durango and just assuming they were going to Dick Brown's house, which was through the woods on another road, I think is interesting. In this account, Ireland calls Dick up but doesn't get an answer, so he starts calling Dick's relatives, so he must know all of them if he can (laughs) just call them from his phone. He finally gets Robert Brown, a nephew, who goes to check on Dickie at Ireland's urging and calls back Ireland to tell him that Brown has been attacked, tied up, and his house ransacked. In a March 2020 court document, it says that Sergeant Galen Estes of the Kennebec County Sheriff's Office showed up and told Ireland he was there to investigate a burglary in the area, that a nearby homeowner had been tied up at gunpoint, his home was ransacked. Ireland got on the radio and told the, you know, the state dispatcher that... 
then had Estes stay with Amber, and he went to Brown's home to investigate because Estes told him it's Dick Brown's house. So that's the second version. So it wasn't Ireland who figured it all out. In the January 2021 court document, it says that Ireland noticed the footprints, went to Dick Brown's house, and, quote, made a series of phone calls to determine if Brown was safe. He learned from one of Brown's relatives that someone had broken into Brown's home, held him at gunpoint, tied him up, held him in the basement, and ransacked the house. The attacker had also stolen Brown's pickup truck. Lieutenant Ireland reported this additional information over the radio and requested that all available units report to the scene. So that's kind of like the attorney general's report, only a little different. And according to this account, that's when Sergeant Galen Estes of the Sheriff's Department showed up in response to Ireland's radio call. (sighs) I'm not saying all of these accounts can't be true, it's interesting how, too, one of them in the report that finds Ireland was justified in shooting Kadhar Bailey make it look like Ireland is the proactive cop and on top of everything. The second account, that Estes showed up in response to someone reporting the home invasion, makes more sense to me. Someone at the house called 911 yeah. and reported it to police. That doesn't mean maybe that Ireland didn't know and did what he did and made those calls, but... When I first read the first account where Ireland's just, oh, those footprints are walking to Dickie Brown's house. I know. I'm going to call and see if he's okay and then call all his relatives and see he's okay. That doesn't make sense to me. I was like, okay, that's confusing. Maybe it just happened and Dick was still tied up and didn't get a chance to report it. But it still seemed off. That's weird. Anyway, that exercise just shows how even official documents can skew details to support a narrative. And three official documents recounting the same thing can tell the story differently and skew it because they want to give the narrative the twist that benefits them. And I saw that when I was covering the Logan Clegg trial when police testified in court as well. Oh, yeah. Anyways, whichever account is correct, shortly after that, Vassalboro Police Chief Mark Brown, no relation to the golfing family, they have an E on the end and he doesn't, And Main State Police Trooper Jeffrey Parks joined the party. If you listened to our last episode, you'll recognize Parks' name as the guy who six years later shot Shane McKenna and Rangeley. And that's what brought this all up. The 2020 court document implies that Parks and the Vassalboro Police Chief Mark Brown both showed up when Ireland and Estes were at the Durango, but it's vague about it. The AG's report and later court docs say that Ireland was gone. He had already gone to Dick Brown's to see what was going on over there. The AG's report says that the Vassalboro chief, Mark Brown, found drugs in the Durango and that Amber had two ring boxes in her coat pocket that, quote, her boyfriend, unquote, had given to her and told her to hold. It's not clear why at this point, with drugs, it's not specified what kind, and the implication is stolen property are found in the car, why she isn't removed and put in a police cruiser. Yeah. That's something I'm going to be mentioning a few times and you'll see why I care. The AG's report takes care to point out that Estes then moved police vehicles out of the way. That report says vehicles with an S. Another report says he just moved his own cruiser, but out of the way so local residents could get by on the narrow road. And I think they feel it's important to mention that to make it seem like it would have been inconvenient to put Amber in a cruiser, though it never brings that up. Because why raise the question if people aren't asking it? But that is weird. But it's a point of contention, and it's one I totally agree with, that Amber should have been put in a police cruiser immediately. They suspected her of criminal activity, 
Like I said, they found drugs and what they assumed were stolen goods in the car on her person. And Ireland also said she was a little out of it for whatever reason. They implied drugs. Maybe it was. Maybe she was sick. Maybe she was tired. But why wasn't she put in a cruiser? I don't get why they left her in the Durango. Aside from the logic of removing her from a suspect vehicle and taking her into custody, the high temperature that day was 13 Fahrenheit. Mm. By now, the sun was going down. And with the snow on the ground, I'm sure it was wicked cold. I find it hard to believe the cops would leave her alone in the Durango with the engine running. I'm sure with the succession of babysitters that stood by her there, none of them were sitting in the car with her, but they're not going to leave her in a running car. If she had been moved to one of the many police cruisers there, she would be alive today, or at least would not have been shot. The Attorney General's March 2018 account and the January 2021 court account say that when Maine State Trooper Jeffrey Parks arrived, he saw Mark Brown talking to someone in the Durango. The January 2021 court document says he did not look at the person, but assumed it was the female suspect Lieutenant Ireland had described over the radio. Ireland has already gone to investigate at Dick Brown's house, and Parks leaves the scene to go meet Ireland, which I assume means he drove back up Arnold Road to Weber Pond Road and then turned and drove down Fairway. You can't, that's the only way to get between the two. Parks tracked down Ireland on Fairway Drive, and Ireland told Parks to conduct safety checks of nearby residences. Meanwhile, at Dick Brown's home, Dick told Ireland about the home invasion. Ireland then returned to the Durango to join Estes and Vassalboro Police Chief Mark Brown. After Ireland got back, he heard over the radio that another officer had found Brown's stolen truck, according to one report. Either that, or as the Attorney General reports it, he found brown's stolen (laughs) truck on a snowmobile trail and saw footprints from it that from his knowledge of the area determined they were leading back to the durango so either he found the stolen toyota tacoma from dick brown's house on a snowmobile trail nearby and through his sherlock holmes abilities saw the footsteps and saw they were leading back to the durango or As two other reports say, another officer found the truck. It was down by the pond somewhere. In any case, whichever is true, immediately thereafter, according to one of the court documents, Ireland got a call from Kate Pino, a homeowner down there, who said, quote, the armed suspect was in front of her house, unquote, which was about two-tenths of a mile from the Durango toward Weber Pond. Ireland and Estes left the Durango to go investigate with Ireland driving his police cruiser and Estes taking Brown's cruiser, which is a convenient after-the-fact explanation of why, again, it wouldn't have been good to have Amber in a police vehicle. I don't understand why two guys need to take two cruisers two-tenths of a mile down the road to this woman's house. I just think that they build a lot of factual about why they couldn't have yes. Amber in a car, well, even though they, they never come out and say It's a lot of it. reverse obviously, engineering, too, yes. on the story. Obviously, they could have done this differently. Two-tenths of a mile is not that far. It's like to I the know. end of your block. Anyway, Chief Mark Brown, the Vassalboro Police Chief, stayed with Amber and the Durango, the court document says. So now he's the third guy to stay with Amber, Estes has stayed with her earlier when Ireland went to Dick Brown's house. Ireland was with her at the beginning. And the court document points out no police vehicles remained at the scene. So I guess Mark Brown just stood out there in the dropping temperatures. I've never been in a 
cop car. I have. But it seems like their back seat must have, like, you can't get out. Yeah, they can put you... They put... Obviously, they put people in them all the time. When Estes and Ireland got to the Pinot residence, you know, two-tenths of a mile down the road that they both had to (laughs) to drive to, they found footprints, which they followed and, quote, eventually saw the suspect. Hmm. The report says Lieutenant Ireland said that he realized that the suspect was heading back to the Durango. He told Sergeant Estes to warn Chief Brown over the radio, which he did. Lieutenant Ireland then headed back to the Durango. None of that... From the part where Kate Pinot said, hey, he's in front of my house, to them driving down there or any of that. None of that was in the AG report about the shooting, which goes right from Ireland supposedly finding Dick Brown's pickup, seeing footsteps. I know, seeing footsteps leading back to where he knew the Durango was and alerting Vassalboro Police Chief Mark Brown about it. But in any case, according to the March 2020 court documents, Estes radioed Chief Brown and updated him regarding the home invasion and his belief that Mr. Bailey was heading toward the Durango and was armed. So just to recap, because I know this is confusing, Ireland and Estes see Kedhar Bailey running through the woods or on the snowmobile trail or something. Estes calls up Mark Brown, the Vassalboro police chief who's at the Durango with Amber, and says he's on his way and he's armed. Chief Brown, who according to the documents was standing next to the passenger side of the Durango, I guess chatting with Amber, saw Bailey approaching with the handgun, or at least, quote, what appeared to be a gun, depending on which document. So Mark Brown drew his gun, identified himself as a police officer, and moved around the front of the Durango to go to the driver's side, pointed his gun at Bailey, and ordered him to stop. One court document says, despite Chief Brown's commands, Mr. Bailey continued to approach. One account says Bailey raised his right arm and Mm. Brown, quote, feared that the suspect intended to fire on him, unquote, and he fired at Bailey and then took cover behind a snowbank. And it says they exchanged gunfire. Another says Brown fired two shots, then, quote, heard the suspect fire at least one shot and returned fire. But the AG's report says that while Chief Brown moved Hmm. to the driver's side of the Durango, Bailey went to the passenger side, extended his arm over the hood of the Durango with what appeared to be a handgun. Brown fired, then found cover behind a snowbank. Brown heard what he believed to be a gunshot while behind the snowbank he did not see Bailey shoot at him. And the AG's report says Mr. Bailey, seemingly uninjured, got into the Durango from the passenger side and made his way to the driver's side, unquote. So I guess he crawled Hmm. over Amber. It says that Brown fired at the car as Bailey accelerated and pulled out and drove up Arnold Road. The court document points out, quote, all parties agree that had Amber been sitting upright in the passenger seat, she likely would have been hit by one of Chief Brown's bullets. Uh The parties have stipulated that none of Chief Brown's shots hit Amber, unquote. And I think that they make that point because it benefits everyone that Amber was lying down or not sitting up straight on the seat as you'll see okay meanwhile trooper jeff parks heard over the radio that ireland saw the suspect heading back to the durango he was over on fairway drive so he drove his cruiser back up fairway drive over weber pond road the document says as he came down arnold road back to where the durango was both police vehicles he had previously seen there were gone as he approached he said he heard multiple gunshots near the durango 
He said he saw someone crouch behind a snowbank and movement outside of the Durango. He concluded that the suspect and the police were exchanging fire. He parked his cruiser in the middle of the road, approximately 25 yards from the Durango. He got out and took cover behind his car. Now, this is Maureen again. I'm not sure Parks was driving a sedan or one of the big Ford Crown Vic SUVs that the Maine State Police drive. I'm guessing it's one of those SUVs because almost all of them seem to drive those now. Yeah. And it, um, well, they're cooler. Right. It's And again, it's interesting that the story never says what kind of car Parks was driving when they're so focused on talking about the Durango. But either one would have filled the road from snowbank to snowbank. Yeah. So he was facing down Arnold Road and stopped his car there, blocking the road. He wasn't yeah. across okay. it, like sideways. He was facing Okay, I pictured he was across it when right. I saw the Okay. In fact, the 2020 court document says the high snowbanks made it impossible for another vehicle to get by Trooper Park's cruiser on Arnold Road. And the document says from his vantage point, Trooper Park saw Mr. Bailey get into the Durango, rev the engine, and rapidly accelerate down Arnold Road toward his cruiser. The car was accelerating rapidly, and Trooper Park said from the engine noise, he believed that the driver had pushed the gas pedal to the floor. The road was too narrow for the Durango to pass Trooper Park's cruiser without hitting a snowbank, so Trooper Parks concluded that the driver intended to ram his car. Trooper Parks quickly moved away from his cruiser and climbed on top of a snowbank. He said it was a sunny day and there was plenty of light outside. And we'll talk about that in a little while. He said that from the snowbank he could see directly into the Durango and that nothing obstructed his view. He said he saw only the driver and that the passenger seat appeared to be empty. The Durango continued to accelerate toward his cruiser. Park said he believed his life was in immediate danger. I'm not sure why, since Bailey was driving as fast as he could. He wasn't the in road, the car. And Parks was not in the car. He was off to the side on a snowbank. He fired several shots into the Durango as it passed within a couple feet of him and collided with his cruiser. Mm. He said he aimed all of his shots at the driver, and that he intended to stop the driver from using deadly force against him. The Durango crashed into Parks' cruiser, and again, they have to emphasize missing Parks by a few feet. I just want to say, too, even if he did feel like he was in danger from the speeding car, how is shooting the driver when you're feet away on a snowbank? Either way, he's going to crash into the cruiser. I know. And you're in danger whether you shoot him or not. He's not shooting at anything. He's driving the car. I know. So if the danger is from the speeding car hitting your cruiser, you're in danger no matter what you do. I know. You're not going to stop the car by shooting it. One account says that Parks actually stood in the road and shot through the windshield, hmm. then retreated back into the snowbank. I find that hard to believe if he was going that fast, and I only saw that in one and place. That, well, that report makes him makes his story more credible that his life was in danger. No matter what happened, I take issue with his life being in imminent danger since he was not in the car that Bailey was about to hit. And no. more, more on that later. Ireland heard the gunshots but didn't see the crash, but armed with what is described as a patrol rifle, he ran to the scene to find the Durango had crashed into Park's cruiser. Once he was within 15 or 20 yards of the Durango, he said that he could see the driver and that the driver appeared to have something in his left hand, which was out the driver's side window. Ireland said he identified himself as a state police officer and told the driver to show him both hands. One court doc says, quote, 
Instead of complying, the driver put his arm back in the car, looked back over his shoulder at Lieutenant Ireland, then looked at his lap and the Durango center console before looking back at Lieutenant Ireland. Lieutenant Ireland fired one shot, killing the driver. The attorney general's report about the shooting said that Bailey quote, made a series of quick movements toward the center console while twice looking back at Lieutenant Ireland, unquote, and then Ireland shot him. Hmm. Ireland assumed, we can infer from the accounts, which don't come out and say it, that Bailey was reaching for a gun. They're very careful about what they say and don't say. Yeah. Of course, Amber, shot in the head, was found slumped over the center console. So my thought is possibly Bailey was like, oh shit, Amber's been shot. And was reaching for her. Yeah. Maybe cops don't realize that just because they're screaming shit at someone in a traumatic situation, the person understands and is going to comply when there's somebody shot in the head slumped next to them. Exactly. And when police then approached the Durango, they found Amber, like I said, slumped across the center console of the car with her head under Bailey's arm. Bailey, of course, was dead at this point, too. So he must have slumped over to her when he was shot. But also, sure enough, according to the police, they found a 32 caliber semi-automatic pistol between the driver's seat and the center console with one bullet in the chamber and two in the magazine. Uh Amber died the next day at Maine Medical Center in Portland, and the autopsy determined a single bullet passed through her right shoulder and head, killing her. The finding was that the trajectory of the bullet makes it extremely unlikely that she was sitting upright in the Durango when she was shot, of course. The investigation determined that it was Park's shot that killed Amber and Ireland killed Bailey. As with all police-involved shootings in Maine, the Attorney General's office took over and Parks, Ireland, and Vassalboro Police Chief Mark Brown were all put on paid administrative leave while it was investigated. Steve McCausland, the Department of Public Safety spokesman, told the Morning Sentinel on Saturday, the day after the shooting, because this is an officer-involved shooting, a lot of the specifics will come out in the course of the Attorney General's investigation. They sent a team of investigators up to Vassalboro last night to begin that effort, And past practice shows that it will be several weeks before many specifics of the case are released, unquote. Mm -hmm. I also think it's interesting that every report, as I said, makes sure to emphasize Bailey's SUV was a Durango. Fairly big and powerful car. They don't come out and say that, but people who are familiar with cars know a Durango is a big, powerful SUV. Not one says what kind of cruiser Parks had. I think this is to make the threat of Bailey ramming the cruiser seem like an unfair fight. It's funny, the details they emphasize and the ones that are left out of every single document that's yeah. that I can find that's publicly available about this. The Kennebec Journal and Morning Sentinel in their articles after the shooting didn't have anything about the victims except to mention that Bailey had been convicted as a juvenile in 2009 of aggravated criminal mischief. Other than that, they had nothing, nada, nil, zilch about the two. The Kennebec Journal and Morning Sentinel didn't have another story until August when Amber's mother filed her intention to sue, and then didn't have another story until March 2018 when the Attorney General's office, wait for it, ruled that the shooting was justified. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. It was pretty piss-poor reporting and guidance from editors, if you ask me. Full disclosure, until I left those papers four months before this happened, I would have been the supervising editor on this, and every single person who wrote one of the KJ or Sentinel stories would have been under my supervision at some point when I was there. And I'm just saying that because I feel like I have a right to bit about the coverage. I know what I'm talking about, but I wasn't there anymore. 
<laughs> and that's all I'm going to say about that. While the Sentinel and KJ presented what little police told them in the Brown story, they did not contact friends and family of the two people who were killed by police. And as you saw by their headlines, didn't even think that was an important that's part of so the story. That's so weird. I know. The Bangor Daily News, which time and again shows it's the best newspaper in Maine, yeah. although that's not saying a lot, <laughs> Bailey's brother, Corey Barter of Sanford, told the Bangor Daily News that the way information was released has led people to believe it was a Bonnie and Clyde situation. The BDN helpfully points out to readers that this is referring to a couple notorious as deadly outlaws who robbed people during the Great Depression and eventually were shot and killed by law enforcement. <laughs> Maybe it's just me, but I don't think you need to go into detail to explain Pawnee and Clyde. Conhar Bailey was the son of Stephen E. Bailey of Gardner and Monica Barter Sawyer of Richmond, both Kennebec River towns in the Augusta area. He was born in Brunswick and grew up in Gardner. His brother and others are quick to tell the BDN that while he'd been in trouble with law enforcement before... He was a good guy who had seemed to have straightened out his life until recently. It's another sad story oh. about a basically good kid with hopes and dreams who gets sidetracked by drugs. It's a little confusing, oh. but Kadhar Bailey was convicted in Kennebec County as a juvenile of aggravated criminal mischief, as the Kennebec Journal had reported, in 2009. He was born in 1991, so would have been 17 or 18 at the time of his conviction. State records don't show his sentence, and I'm surprised that it even has his conviction, given that I thought juvenile records were sealed. At the same time, at the age of 17, he was convicted in Essex County Superior Court in Salem, Massachusetts, for dealing cocaine and spent three years in prison in Massachusetts. He was considered adult in, in that state at the age of 17. He was released in 2012. This would have happened like at the same time the thing in Kennebec County was happening. My guess is while he was convicted in 2009 in Kennebec County, he must have been arrested the year or two before, and the conviction, yeah, just you know, it took a while, and by then he was already in trouble in Massachusetts. Both things kind of happened at the same time. After he got out of prison in 2012, he got into the roofing business, which he loved, according to his obituary, which says, Kadhar can be remembered mostly for what a hard worker he was. At age 16, he shingled his father's roof, which became a lifelong passion of his. Kadhar started his own roofing company. He was a constant fixture in his Uncle Monty's work truck, riding along and working any chance he could. The obituary photo shows a handsome young man with short blonde hair smiling up the camera. The obituary says, Aww. Although Kadhar had succumbed to many recent challenges, growing up he was a kind, thoughtful young man and had a knack of getting everyone around him to love him. As a child... He loved playing football, spending time with his grandfather, playing video games with his brother, and lifting weights. He enjoyed wrestling and horsing around with his stepson and nephews. They all loved him dearly. His laugh, humor, and big blue eyes will be sorely missed, unquote. His sister Tiffany Barter Ahern had just died three months before in a car accident in Tennessee where she lived. And she was 30 at the mm. time. Kedhar's former fiance, Crystal Lynn O'Neill, of West Gardner told the Bangor Daily News that he changed the life of herself and her son, who was seven when Kadhar died. Quote, I will forever be thankful for his love for my son and I, she said in a text to the Bangor Daily News. In an interview with them, she said he'd proposed Valentine's Day 2016, and they planned a June 2017 wedding, but his drug problems had recently cropped back up and she'd broken things off two weeks before the shooting. 
Words cannot even begin to express what we are going through right now. My son is beyond devastated, she told the BDN. She said that a few weeks before the shooting, he'd started selling off his stuff, including his work trailer, work tools, and other things. The drugs changed him a lot, she said. She said after they broke up, he immediately sought out help for his drug problem, but it didn't work out. And I'm thinking that was only two weeks before. Sometimes it takes a while for things to catch on. You wonder what happened there. I know. But she added, he continued to support her emotionally and financially and had stopped by to visit the day before the shooting. His brother, Corey Barter, said that Bailey's recent drug use really surprised his family. He said everything seemed fine at Christmas, but then changed fast. In the article, Corey doesn't mention their sister dying. But you wonder if that had any effect on Kedahar's mental state. A week after the shooting, his father, Stephen Bailey, started a GoFundMe titled Kedahar's Memorial Fund. Since then, it raised $1,530 of its $4,500 goal with 14 donations. The last one was several years ago. Ambrosia Fagre, given name was Amber Ray, and that's what people called her, either Amber or Amber Ray, didn't have an obituary. Her mother couldn't afford one. And just a quick note for people who don't know, most newspapers used to run obituaries for free. Over the past 20 years, that's changed, and most charge by the inch, and they can cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars, which is why the one our dad claims to have written for himself is not going to be published in the newspaper unless he leaves a much bigger estate than he seems to have. Anyway... (laughs) Though online services like Legacy, where Kedhar Bailey's obit was, seem to be the go-to places for obituaries now, they probably charge too. My understanding is that some funeral homes will eat the cost, but Amber's mother didn't even have the money for a funeral home. By the way, the arrangements for Kedhar were by our old friend's plumber funeral home Mm -hmm. in Augusta. Mm -hmm. A sidebar to the February 25th 2017 article that talked to the family members of Kedhar and Amber both by Naknoy Ricker, had the headline, Family Struggling to Bury 18-Year-Old Killed by Police. Amber's mother, Jessica Fagre of Oakland, told Naknoy that if she could afford an obit, she would let people know that her daughter loved to sing and dance and planned to open a dance studio one day. The article has a link to YouTube videos of Amber singing and dancing, but when I clicked on it, it said the content was no longer available. Naknoy did a nice job providing the info an obit would have, noting that Amber had a twin sister, Brittany, an older sister, Desi, and a brother, Dustin. She was born on December 10, 1998 in Putnam, Connecticut, but moved to Maine at a young age. Her father, Charles Boudreaux III, died when she was three and a half, and Corey Perkins of Augusta stepped in when she was six years old to fill the parental role, her mother told the Bangor Daily News. Amber attended but did not graduate from Winslow and Coney High Schools and planned to get her high school equivalency. She'd recently learned the art of sword swallowing Mm. and was going to attend the World's Sword Swallowers Day, sponsored by Ripley's Believe It or Not in New York City on February 25th. That was the day that two articles about her ran in the Bangor Daily News. She was going to go with her boyfriend, Nick Penny of Augusta, who is also a sword swallower. The article said Hmm. a GoFundMe set up by a friend to raise money for her funeral costs titled let's lay Amber to rest raised $790 and is no longer active and $790 won't even get you the felt lining in the coffin. I know. Well, what do you do? So what happens when someone's indigent? What happens with their body and everything? I don't know. Chastity Tebow, the friend who'd started the GoFundMe page posted on it. 
Unfortunately, I have made this page to try to help Jessica as she has been a single mom and her 18-year-old daughter, Amber Fagre's Amber Ray's life was taken by law enforcement. Amber gained her angel wings after fighting for her life for 24 hours. She couldn't overcome the injury she sustained. As Jessica had to make that decision to take her daughter off life support, no parent should have to experience this. Amber might not have been an angel. Yes, she has done wrong and has battled the addiction demons, but she did not mm -hmm. deserve to have her life taken. So I'm praying as a community we can come together and help Jessica give her daughter the celebration of life she was robbed of at such a young age. Amber was that girl, if you told you was cold, she would give you something to keep you warm, no matter what she had to do to make it happen. Amber, unfortunately, was with the wrong person at the wrong time, and it cost her her life. Jessica Fagre said that just a month before, Amber had told her that if anything happened to her, she wanted to be an organ donor. And oh. her mother told the Bangor Daily News she's helped four people with her organs. Oh. Amber also had some minor brushes with the law. She had been caught stealing from a store about a year before, her mother said. In fact, less than a week before the shootings, on February 4th, Amber's name appears in the Sentinel's police log as being arrested on two warrants. It doesn't say for what. And obviously, she was out by February 10th. And the warrants were likely on the shoplifting charge, and maybe there was something else. Lots of times, if you're poor and get arrested on one thing, it ends up to leading to other charges if you don't go to yeah. court or you miss paying yeah. a fine, and it just all piles up. Amber's mother, boyfriend, and others who knew her, though, despite her brush with the law, her mother, boyfriend, and others who knew her said they were sure she wasn't involved in the burglaries in Vassalboro the day she was shot. Jessica said her daughter was visiting friends in Vassalboro that day, and they told her Amber had left there to walk home. It's a long walk from Vassalboro to Oakland, where Amber lived, though they're not that far as the crow flies. With the Kennebec River dividing the two towns, she would have had to walk to Waterville to cross the river, with Oakland just west of Waterville. From where she was shot in Vassalboro to the Hannaford on Kennedy Memorial Drive in Waterville, which is where you'd go past if you were going to Oakland it's about 10 miles okay but her mother said she'd often get rides from friends or hitchhike she didn't have a driver's license I read another account in which a friend who wasn't named described Kedhar Bailey as a drug buddy of Amber's I questioned that account other family members didn't know who he was and I was gonna say did anyone know that they hung I mean it was anyone that's no she could have known him I question any anonymous person who's going to call him a drug buddy say shit like that all the you time. know but it's likely for whatever reason he either saw her walking or hitchhiking and picked her up or she might have known him and called him we'll never know in an online post her boyfriend nick penny said that Kadhar bailey picked up Amber after the Dick Brown burglary, which would make more sense than her sitting in the Durango for the supposedly three hours it took him to ransack that house. But then you have to wonder why they were back down in that neighborhood if that's what happened. He took Dick Brown's truck. Right. He could have picked her up and then maybe she was going to drive his car, but she was too out of it or something. That's possible. But we'll never know. Jessica also said that her daughter had some developmental problems that and she described her as quote-unquote delayed she said she trusted everyone she mm. didn't get that feeling that something is wrong she just didn't get that you know with people 
Yeah. Nick Penny, Fagre's boyfriend, also told the Bangor Daily News he didn't see her being involved in the burglaries. He said that she was a friend to all who stood up for those smaller than her. She was kind, the type of person who would give you her coat off her back if you were cold, buy you food if you were hungry, or sit and talk with you if you were lonely. The police, of course, weren't telling the families of either of the shooting victims anything because of the ongoing investigation. Well, on one hand, I understand that. My guess is also that it's important for the police to separate their shooting victims into a category that can help with their side of the story and not treat their families with compassion or understanding. Mm. Members of the Fagre family frequently show up in the newspaper police log for petty crimes, and I think that, as far as police are concerned, and the public, too, that puts them in kind of a less-than category. And if I had to guess, that was the attitude at the Kennebec Journal of Morning Sentinel about even yes. trying to find out about these people. I commend the Bangor Daily News for treating them like human beings who deserve. Oh I know. It's- I don't know. Upsets me. I know. We can talk more about it later. <laughs> Both Amber and Cotter's family had a lot of questions, but no answers. And again, this was before the details from those documents I read were released. And as I said, police told them nothing. But Jessica said, from what little she knew, police didn't need to use excessive force like that. They could have took the car out. And I think she means they could have, like, they did take the car out, you know, so I'm with the crash. That's what they pretty much did. O'Neill Kedhar's former girlfriend also says, I understand they have to look out for others, but I think they took it too far. An 18-year-old and a 25-year-old lost their lives. I don't understand. They clearly shot to kill. She also doesn't understand why police took aim at Amber. And again, this is before they knew the police narrative that Amber Mm -hmm. was slumped down in the car and Parks didn't see her. She said, I could have been right there instead of her. That could have been me. I think, though, that people don't get that police aren't able to, especially in the heat of the moment, selectively do certain things. They're blazing away, just like people in a lot of cases they're shooting at are or claim that they are. You know, and it's not yeah. like sometimes people say, why didn't they shoot him in the knee? And they you know, can't, though. Well, that right. cop explained it to us that time at Crime Bay. It was a good explanation why they can't. And they're just blazing away. Jessica Fagre also said they could have done so many different things to de escalate that situation. Instead, they chose not to. And by doing that, they killed an innocent girl, which I agree mm-hmm. with too. It seems like the go to yes. is just to shoot. She said they mm-hmm. took an innocent life and then labeled her a suspect. Robert Robar, Amber's grandfather, who was apparently sitting there during this BDN interview, said, that's just to cover their asses. How do they justify mm-hmm. shooting an unarmed girl? That's not justified. That's right, Gramps. Jessica also said, I want justice. I want it figured out. I want an apology. I want whoever did this to be held accountable if that was us doing the shooting, we'd be held accountable. Yes. And I'm like, yeah, don't hold Thanks. your breath. Nick Penny speculated that with the state's history of finding police shootings justified, it's never found one not to be since it started investigating them in 1990. Quote, the only chance of justice is for the FBI to take over the investigation. However, they won't do that if we, the people, allow them to sweep her murder under the rug. He said, there should be some sort of example set with this case where the cops know they just can't start shooting. Corey Barter, Kathar's brother, said, none of these officers will say anything, so we're really fighting an uphill battle. Is there any way we could put them on the stand so we could ask yeah. questions? He told the Bangor Daily News, however, he doubted that the Office of the Attorney General would end up charging any of the officers involved. 
I certainly don't think that will happen, Barter said. A friend of Amber's, Sierra Towers, started a petition on Change.org, Justice for Amber, to send to U.S. Senator Susan Collins. Huh. It eventually got 675 signatures. Yeah, like Susan Collins is going to do anything. Towers told the BDN, if that was a civilian doing the shooting, that person would be arrested on the spot and charged. Huh. These cops get paid leave. If it was me, I'd be locked up with no key, no nothing. Mm-hmm. People who sign these petitions have to make a comment on why they did. There's a lot of stuff there. The police suck or fry that <laughs> baby. But there's one from Amber's sister. It says Christina Rose, though that's not one of the names her mom gave the BDN. She said Desi, but who knows? Does sound like her sister. She talks about their dad. Anyway, among other things, it says she simply was walking for miles and a strange man offered to pick her up. Her not knowing he was committing robberies took a ride from this man. And I don't know how she knows that. It, it'd be nice to to know. But I know. It, that implies to me that the family didn't think she knew him. And that's the same place that Nick Penny posted that Kadhar picked her up after the burglaries. There were no news stories with any more information about Amber Fogre and Kadhar Bailey's deaths for a long time. But that doesn't mean they weren't mentioned in news reports. A week after they were shot, the late morning of February 18th, 2017, Chance David Baker, 22 of Portland, was shot on the sidewalk outside the Subway Sandwich Shop on St. John Street in Portland by a Portland police officer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was brandishing a gun, Mm -hmm. but according to reports to police who arrived on the scene, was either a pellet gun, a BB gun, or a rifle. He was still brandishing it when they got there, screaming and pointing it at cars, according to the Portland Press-Herald. Unlike the shooting of Amber and Kadhar, this one had plenty of witnesses. Some of them told the Press Herald the guy seemed intoxicated. In any case, he'd put the gun down, pull up his pants after the police arrived. The police warned him not to pick the gun up again, but when he did, one of them shot him through the forehead. It turned out it was a pellet gun that he'd bought from Coastal Trading and Pawn, which is in the same plaza earlier that morning. The name of the officer who shot him wasn't immediately released because... The spokesman for the Portland Police Department said they wanted the officer to have time to tell his family about it. But he was put on paid administrative leave. Baker was the fourth person shot by police in Maine in 2017 at that point. John Anspaugh of Walderboro was shot in January by police responding to a domestic violence call. And then there was Amber and Kadhar. By the end of the year, there were 13 shot and nine dead. Washington Post, which keeps a database of all fatal shootings by police since 2015, lists 41 for Maine between February 9th, 2015, when they they started the thing in 2015. And now there have been 41, including two so far this year. Wow. I can't find the state information on how many there have been since 1990 when the attorney general's office started doing investigations and I guess keeping track. It may be there, but I didn't have time for a deep dive. But a USA Today story in December 2021 said there were at that point 175. I'm not sure if they meant fatal or also ones that injured someone, but I'm going to say fatal. That seems to make sense. If they do mean fatal, there have been 12 since then, so that makes 187. And I've seen references and articles that it's getting close to 200 since, since 1990. So I would assume that that's fatal. 
The Attorney General's office does have a page with links to all its deadly force reports going back to 2003, but those include ones where the person wasn't killed too, so I didn't have time to read each one and see what it was about. In any case, of the 41 the Washington Post lists since February of 2015, two are women with the rest being men, including a 16-year-old boy. Three were black, the teen boy was Hispanic, all the rest are white. 24 were, according to police, armed with guns, seven armed with knives, two with replica weapons, including chance, four with mm-hmm. weapons of a type not listed, and at least four were unarmed. Six were fleeing on foot when they were shot. Three were fleeing in a car. Only six are listed as having a mental illness that contributed to the incident. It's up to the police to report that stuff. Yeah. If, if they don't, and the Washington Post gets a lot of its information from newspaper reports. So it's all what the police tell, you know, the papers <laughs> and stuff. The Washington Post also lists with all the thousands and thousands of police shootings in its database, whether there is body cam footage. It <laughs> won't surprise you to know that not one of Maine's has it. On March 8th, 2018, a little more than a year after the shootings, it also won't surprise you to learn that the Maine Attorney General's office, like it has every time before and since the police have shot somebody in Maine, found the shootings to be justified. (laughs) The AG's investigation is a look at whether criminal prosecution is warranted, not at whether an officer should be disciplined or anything like that. It looks at whether self-defense, including the defense of others, was reasonably generated by the facts so as to preclude criminal prosecution of an officer who used deadly force. Any such prosecution would require the state to disprove self-defense or the defense of others beyond a reasonable doubt. So, sorry for the legalese there, but what that means is all the attorney general's investigation looks at is whether the police acted in self-defense It says the same as any citizen, but it doesn't have the full statute Hmm. because, as we discovered in the honey murder, the honey, yeah. If you can retreat, it's not self defense. The police don't have to meet that standard. Yeah, a lot of states don't have that if you could retreat thing. And Maine does, but even though the attorney general's standard is. They're only looking at police shootings in light of whether there would be a criminal investigation. The police do not have to meet, I guess, because it doesn't explain that. But I guess they're cops. Well, right. They're not supposed to be retreating. They're supposed to be getting the bad guys. That makes sense. But I want to say that does clarify it, though. What you said clarifies it because they're not saying it was totally justified. They're saying it's justified enough that right. And and I and we'll talk more okay. about this. The yes. investigation does not include whether the use of deadly force could have been averted. Okay. Yes. It does not include whether they should be disciplined or did anything wrong in their jobs. All the attorney general's investigation looks at. It's a very narrow thing whether they should be. That's good to know because. Prosecuted. When they report that, though, they don't explain that. No, they so, don't. And we Nock never Noy, know. Nocknoy Ricker explained it in that February 25th, 2017 article a little bit. And then I read the actual report, which was only three pages long, but explained that. It says in the report that two requirements must be met for an officer to be justified in using deadly force and self-defense or the defense of others. First, 
The person, the cop, must reasonably believe that deadly force is imminently threatened against that person or another. And second, Mm. the person, the cop, must reasonably believe that deadly force is necessary to counter that imminent threat. Further, whether the use of force by a law enforcement officer is reasonable is based on the totality of the particular circumstances and judged from the perspective of a reasonable officer on the scene, allowing for the fact that police officers are often forced to make split-second decisions Mm. about the amount of force necessary in a given situation. The legal analysis requires careful attention to the facts and circumstances of each case, including the severity of the crime threatened or committed and whether the suspect poses an immediate threat to the safety of others. That's directly from the report explaining it. So in other words, if the cops can say, yeah, I believed I was in danger or someone else was in Hmm. self-defense. And they certainly know how to craft their narrative to meet that standard. And investigated were Ireland, Parks, and Mark Brown, the Vassalboro chief, even though he didn't shoot anybody, he shot at people. And so that was considered part of the investigation. The report says, it is our determination that at the moment each officer used deadly force in the rapidly evolving sequence of Mm. events, each reasonably believed that unlawful deadly force was imminently threatened against the officer or another, and it was reasonable for each officer to use deadly force to counter the threat. Each officer acted in self-defense. While certainly tragic, the unintended death of Ms. Fagre does not affect the legal analysis of whether Trooper Parks acted reasonably by firing at Mr. Bailey. Governor Janet Mills, who was Attorney General when Amber and Cotter were shot in 2021 as governor, signed a law that requires the Attorney General to speed up investigations when police use deadly force and have them done within six months. Hmm. Mills had also called for a review of the whole process, and we'll get to how ineffective that was in a minute but you may wonder about this whole review process to begin with while it was retroactive to 1990 the legislature decided in 1993 it was necessary after a 1992 shooting in jackman maine just a little tangent here and this is from a court document and i think i'll do an episode on this because there's a lot more to it but this is directly from a court document with me rewording it a little to make it more better. Catherine Hegarty, a registered Maine guide known for her marksmanship and mm. also other things like fishing and all that Maine guide stuff, but the court document points out the marksmanship. And her husband, John, owned a cabin on a dirt road about three miles from the nearest paved road, U.S. Route 201 in Jackman. About a mile and a half along the road, they'd strung a cable between two pillars, barring passage. Mm. On the morning of May 15, 1992, four campers let themselves in through the gate and set up a campsite about 75 yards from the cabin. Mm. These men, I believe, although the court document doesn't say, and again, I'm going to do an episode on this, where I believe they were from out of state. Yeah. Possibly the M. The yeah, other I was just going to say. The campers left to go fishing and returned to the campsite around 8 p.m. They noticed Catherine Hegarty's truck near the cabin and saw her doing yard work. Hegarty did not speak to them at that time, but about an hour later confronted them, asking who gave them the key for the gate. They believed she was either intoxicated or mentally unstable. 
They said she told them, among other things, this is my house and you're invading my privacy. Yeah, that sounds like drunk or mentally unstable. Is, where's, is she wrong? No. I mean, weren't they? No. She is not wrong. After another verbal exchange, the campers told Hegarty that they would leave in the morning. She allegedly responded, only if you make it till the morning. <laughs> she went into the cabin and got a gun and then from her porch, according to the campers, fired a number of shots in the air in the vicinity of the campers. She went back into the cabin a number of times. The campers believed that she was reloading her gun. One of the campers asked Hegarty if they could leave and Hegarty responded that she would follow them to see how they got through the gate. She went back into the cabin and the campers got into their truck and drove away. As the campers passed Hegarty's Duh. cabin, which they had to drive by to leave, they saw her come out with a gun, but aren't sure if she fired any shots. They believe she followed them part of the way down the dirt road, which I would like to point out is her property. The campers went to a truck stop four or five miles away and called the police. From the description provided by the campers, Somerset County Deputy Thomas Giroux concluded that Hegarty was the person doing the shooting. Giroux was joined by Deputy Renee Gay, Sergeant Wilfred Hines and State Trooper Gary Wright. Dream Weaver. And yeah, <laughs> he keeps popping up. The officers decided to arrest Hegarty, which For I. What? Oh, well, shooting at people. Hmm. Well, she was shooting in the air based on the Massachusetts trespassers story. But again, uh, I'll do an episode on this because okay. there's a lot to it. I'm just saying this is how that review started. They said they planned to try to persuade her to come out of the house, but if that failed and they were successful in separating Hegarty from her firearm, they planned to enter the cabin. Wright warned the others, just because she's a woman, if things go bad, don't hesitate. Oh, the four geez. officers then left the truck stop and met Deputy Crawford, whose name is not included, at the intersection of Route 201 and the dirt road leading to the cabin. The officers briefed Crawford about the situation and their plan of action. The officers went down the dirt road toward the Hegarty cabin. They parked their vehicles about seven-tenths of a mile from the cabin and walked the rest of the way. When they arrived at the cabin, the officers heard music playing inside. Giroux began yelling to Hegarty, identifying himself and telling her that they wanted to speak with her. Hegarty did not respond. Hines also identified himself and rapped on the cabin door with his flashlight, also to no avail. After a few moments, Crawford shined his flashlight into Hegarty's bedroom, where she appeared to have been lying down. Hegarty had a rifle on her bed, and she pointed it toward Crawford. Hegarty turned the volume down on her radio and asked who was at her window. Crawford identified himself. Giroux then yelled again, and Hegarty responded by asking what his intentions were. Rather than telling Hegarty that she was the suspect of their investigation or that they intended to arrest her, Gay told Hegarty that they were investigating burglaries in the area and wanted to talk to her about them. Hegarty then repeatedly mm -hmm. asked the officers what they wanted and asked them to leave her property. During the conversation with Hegarty, the officers noticed that Hegarty appeared to be intoxicated or mentally unstable. The officers again oh, asked gee. Hegarty to come out of the cabin, but she refused. About this time, Hegarty moved from her bedroom to the front of the cabin. She knelt on her couch with her hands on the back of the couch looking out the window. She no longer appeared to be armed. Officer Gay... Seeing that Hegarty was not armed, told Hines, she doesn't have a gun, go. Hines then pulled open the screen door and repeatedly kicked in the front door, which was locked with a chain. Just as Hines entered the cabin, he heard Gay yell, she's got a gun, don't go. Once Hines was inside, Hegarty mm. started to point her rifle at him. Gay and Wright yelled to Hegarty to put down her gun. When she did not do so, Hines, Wright, and Gay shot her. 
the shots were fatal. There was a huge outcry, and then Attorney General Michael Carpenter strongly criticized the officers and recommended they be fired, but said no laws had been broken. The officers were also not fired. Cops in Maine, including the Police Chiefs Association, attacked the Attorney General for criticizing the officers. Hegarty's husband filed a wrongful death suit, which he initially won, but it was overturned on appeal. That outcry, though, is what prompted the AG review of all police shootings. The legislature passed the law in 1993, and it was retroactive to all police shootings to 1990. But again, it was only that very narrow whether they did anything criminal or not, whether they could be charged criminally for what they had done. That makes sense. In 2019, after the deadly year of 2017 police shootings, the legislature created the Deadly Force Review Panel, a 14-member volunteer body with broad experience and expertise. Up until then, the review was done by investigators from the AG's office. Since the panel was created in 2019, it hasn't made any significant decisions that would be different from before. They're allowed to make recommendations like, oh, these guys need better training and stuff. I believe that the issue is what the review itself is based on, the self-defense thing. Nothing will change until that parameter is changed, until what the review is is changed. And yes, you're right. Body cams would make a big difference because right now it's always the police narrative. And these guys certainly know how to craft it to make it in their favor. And so it goes. Meanwhile, Amber's mother wasn't going to sit around and wait. In August 2017, before the AG's review came out, she filed a wrongful death suit against Trooper Jeff Parks, Lieutenant Kevin Ireland, and Vassalboro Police Chief Mark Brown. Jessica Fagre, in her suit, said that excessive force against Amber was used in violation of the 4th and 14th Amendments and in violation of the Maine Constitution and under the Maine Civil Rights Act. She said there was a failure to protect Amber in violation of the 14th Amendment, and there was negligence under Maine law and wrongful death under Maine state law. Basically, she argued that they didn't protect her daughter, that Park shot knowing Amber was in the truck, and that she could be killed, and that it wasn't necessary to shoot at the truck anyway. I'm condensing it because there's all this. Yes. The district court dismissed the claims against Brown in Ireland. Mm. Fagre didn't appeal that. It didn't immediately dismiss the one against Parks, the guy who shot Amber, but it later ruled in March 2020 that Parks did not violate Amber's civil rights, but even if he had, he would be entitled to qualified immunity. Hmm. Qualified immunity means government officials can't be sued for stuff that happens when they do their jobs. Police departments all over the country use it to get out of all sorts of things, including traffic violations. I did a story a while back about police who are in traffic violations who hit and kill people and use it um, and stuff like that. Ah. The court also ruled that Park's use of force was reasonable. Jessica Fagre appealed and in January 2021, the appellate court in Boston upheld the lower court's decision. So in other words, she lost the suit twice. In 2021, the state did a little victory lap, adding the court's ruling to its case file, which means, you know, lawyers will use it now to... Yes, it's a precedent. And it quoted the 21 court ruling, saying, The First Circuit affirmed the order of the district court holding that summary judgment was warranted, and Trooper Parks was also entitled to qualified immunity in that his use of deadly force was objectively reasonable under the circumstances. The court noted that, based on the facts alleged and admitted by the plaintiff, 
no reasonable jury could conclude that Trooper Parks knew or should have known that Ms. Fagre was in the car when he fired into it. Further, no reasonable jury could conclude that it was unreasonable for Trooper Parks to believe that the driver posed an imminent threat. When Trooper Parks fired into the vehicle, the suspect was attempting to ram Trooper Parks and his cruiser at full speed. On February 11, 2021, four years after the shooting and a few weeks after that decision came out, Amber's twin sister, Brittany, started another Change.org petition. Titled, Closure for My Twin, Brittany says on the petition page, My sister was 18 years old and shot in cold blood. Multiple stories came out and none of them match. It's been four years too long and I'm still hurt like it was yesterday. The man she encountered with Aww. wasn't good, no, but she was at the wrong place, wrong time. She didn't even get to live half of a decade. I try to stay strong for my family's sake. I've held quiet for too long. I need closure just as much as she deserves it. Please sign this petition I made, a new one where the other was four years old. Please take a look and consider. My heart and soul is just heavy, and this is the least I can do for my twin. The goal for the petition was 520 signatures. Three years later, it has 377. And that's Aww. my story. I'd just like to make a couple points. First of all, I don't get how Kadhar Bailey trying to ram a cruiser that Parks wasn't in was using deadly force against Parks. The case law thing says the suspect was attempting to ram Trooper Parks in his cruiser at full speed, but Parks was not in the cruiser and was not in the road and could not be hit because of the snowbanks. Also, Parks took great pains to say how he did not see anyone in the passenger seat, even saying it was sunny and there was good light and that he could clearly see in and didn't see anyone. Obviously, she was in there. I'll say that he sure knew at some point she was in the Durango. Did he assume one of the other cops had gotten her out? Maybe. Or maybe he didn't give a shit if she was still in it or not. He knew earlier she was in it. Okay, Nobody, I was going to ask you that. Okay, He knew she was in the Durango. That's clear. Nobody took her out of it. They had a lot of radio traffic telling each other what was going on. They had three different guys standing by the Durango babysitting her while she was in it and hassling her. He should have assumed she was in it then. She wasn't. They certainly bent over backwards to make it clear Amber was probably on drugs and slumping around in the seat and not sitting up straight, didn't they? I find it interesting that yes. in the heat of the moment, or whatever they want to call it, he couldn't ascertain she wasn't in the seat. I really wonder if she was lying down. Maybe she was so she wouldn't get shot. Um, I was thinking that, too. She was ducking down because she was scared. Also, he said it was light out and he could see. By now, it was close to 5 p.m. If you live in Maine, look out your window between 4.45 and 5 p.m. on February 10th, yeah. which is in a few days, and tell me how light out it is. And just <laughs> to put a point on that, sunset on February 10th, 2017 in Kennebec County, Maine was at 5.01 p.m., according yes. to the weather map in that day's Morning Sentinel. I also... Do not understand, and I know I've said this multiple times, why she was left in the Durango. Yes. I think it's interesting that no one notes in all these detailed reports of multiple narratives whether the Durango was still running, which I doubt. They must have left the keys in it since Cadhar Bailey was able to just get in and drive away. And That's I wonder why. Too. Right. I wonder why they did. If they'd taken them out, then Bailey wouldn't have been able to drive away. 
I'll note again the discrepancies in the different accounts, the fact that police always try to make themselves look as good as possible, and there are no living witnesses, and I've even seen police lie under oath in court to make themselves look better. I've seen it with my own eyes, so why would they tell the truth when there's no one there to counter it? I know it's hard when a guy is waving a gun around to make quick decisions, but it seems a lot of slow decisions could have been made earlier if Amber had been treated like a human being. Yes. Every detail they provide about her is disparaging, is designed Mm -hmm. to just feed their narrative, and it's obvious she was treated with disdain from the beginning. I really do not understand why I've seen people put in police cruisers all the time for no good reason, why she was left in that car. If it was not running, it would have been very, very cold out. It was less than 13 degrees. 13 was the high that day, and now the sun was going down. I bet all their cruisers were nice and warm and running. Why would a girl who was obviously not well for whatever reason be left in a cold car i cannot believe they left it running it would have been running for hours at that point also the one shot kedhar supposedly shot which no one saw him do he shot one shot and that could have been the car door slamming for all we know because vassalboro police chief mark brown was behind the snowbank at that time police fired by their account beginning with mark brown at least nine to twelve shots during the course of this Kedar possibly shot one. And obviously, their shooting escalates the situation. Their pulling out guns, screaming at him and shooting escalates the situation. We hear all the time how tough police have it and how we don't understand. But what I never, ever, ever see is any introspection or acknowledgement that things could be done differently if they didn't come at people in that aggressive way with their guns screaming at them, but instead used other tactics How is a 25-year-old desperate guy who's just committed a crime he knows is going to put him back in prison going to react when cops are running around with guns and screaming at him? I know. Is he going to throw down his gun and not do anything? And finally, we can't say it too many times, body cameras. Until the police wear them, as far as I'm concerned, their credibility is shit. There's only one reason police in Maine don't wear body cameras, and that's because then they wouldn't be able to tell stories like this one. I know. Becky, your thoughts? First of all, I agree with you. One of the main things that bothers me is that they they didn't know why she was in that car, what she was doing. She wasn't committing any crime while she was sitting there. I agree with you, though. I don't understand why they didn't put her in the cruiser. Usually they bring you and put you in the cruiser to right. talk to you. Right. They put like, people what in story cruisers. were we just reading where that someone complained that someone was in the cruiser for hours? Right. I can't right. remember the one, what story your, that was. One of your main murders, the, yeah. the guy, the two roommates in Lincolnville. Oh, yeah. yeah. So he was like, in there for six hours. Yeah. I don't understand that. I don't understand why they wouldn't take the keys out of it unless they were leaving it running to keep it warm for her, but then put her in a cruiser. Why are you leaving this person's car there with keys in it? And um, running or not, this girl sitting there, no matter how out of it she may seem, 
And like I said, she they weren't taken sitting the car in and it. taken off. Yeah. If she's supposedly a suspect, I don't know why she's none of their story right. makes sense. And then these these vague things about oh, there were drugs in the car in the court documents, but it never says what kind, what they found. So, and and I'm if not there were there drugs in the car, then why why was right, she and these, still sitting in the car? Right. And these two ring. Why didn't bo- she take her into custody? Right. And these two ring boxes she had in her coat pocket that she said her boyfriend told her to hold for him, and so which tells me okay. That means Mark Brown searched the car. Did he have her consent to search the car? Because if she was as out of it oh. as Kevin Ireland said, it didn't sound like she was in a condition to allow and consent. The other thing, so, so they must have had probable cause. Blah blah blah. The Why other question I have is: so we already talked about. I wasn't clear because it was a, all the different stories when it parks when he was actually there and if he knew what was going on. So if he was there and and he knew she was in the car, what did he think happened? She just disappeared? In the most detailed account, he said he got there and saw Mark Brown, the Vassalboro police chief, talking to someone in the Durango. Oh, yeah. So he and he assumed was that was the young woman that so Kevin Ireland okay. had talked about That's on the radio. Right. Okay. Also, if he's higher up and said he could see, then that means he would have been able to see the seat of right. the car. Right. So none of that makes sense. That right. story doesn't make sense at all. Right. If he was on a snowbank, he's looking down into yes. the car. So he so, could see her. Right. I don't understand any of it. Ideally, a review committee would look at procedures and if they violated police procedures and stuff. I mean, not just look at the criminal, yes. whether they, they were criminally negligent. They, they sh- but yes, I agree like, with you. Should and, the girl uh, have yes. been in that car? It was yes. the car running? What should you have done? What are your procedures when you come across a situation? What should they have done? Right. Exactly. I feel like if they really wanted to do a, a post-mortem on the situation, they need these cops to go in there and have somebody who is not a friend who's an adversary, maybe they should get a bunch of defense attorneys to do it, but somebody to cross-examine, then ask them hard questions right. like that. Like, why did you not, what was your reasoning? But Who decided, why didn't anyone, did anyone say here, why don't we put her in the cruiser? What were you talking about? Right. What was going on? And you know why they're not gonna? Because... They're all on the same, the attorney general's I know, that's office the problem. They're all and on the, the same cops, team. they're all on the same team. They don't really, I'm not going to say they're not human beings and some of them don't care that they've killed people, but I'm sure they think without the AG having to tell them that they are justified every yes. time they shoot somebody. Yes. Part of the big issue, and that's why I wish everybody would watch that documentary, Peace Officer, <laughs> if they can find it, is that this whole war military mentality where police immediately feel that they're at odds with people and have to yell at people and be tough guys and not treat people like human beings. If I were Amber's mother of everything else that would bother me so much, obviously about this, the fact that her daughter was treated so disparagingly by these men, these grown, big grown men treating this this diminutive girl who had developmental and and if you look at pictures she's the sweet she has a sweet little heart-shaped face and but treating her like garbage treating her even worse than a criminal like she didn't matter not trying to find out what was wrong with her not trying to make her comfortable not listening to her 
I'm sure they were the, that whole boyfriend thing. I can just see because we probably weren't even before. listening to what no. she was saying. No, I've seen other things. Like I was just thinking about that stop of Gabby Petito when that cop's talking to her, and he's not listening to anything she's no. saying. No, and that's what they probably. But also, I was going to say. So the problem with them all being in the same line of work or in the same side, I guess, someone who's also a prosecutor is going to identify more with the cops and they're not going to ask them the hard questions right. and also right. they all know each other they need right people and the review who committee... are going to say why did you do this right and yes this is the normal procedure why didn't you follow it if they have a procedure who the hell knows i mean right. i don't even know what they're and also and i didn't it was too long and i don't want to get into it but there's this massachusetts private eye who's in this vendetta with Kevin Ireland that's been going on for years, but he's written some blog posts about this. One thing he did point out that I agreed with, Kevin Ireland was obviously friends with Dick Brown. Yes. Right? And everything. He should have not been the one to go to be all involved in investigating this. I mean, he was obviously, he's lieutenant. He was a superior officer. He should have gotten somebody over there. Yeah. To be in charge. I mean, Vassalboro, it's not that far from Augusta. A lot of guys showed up. You know, Kevin Ireland, this is his buddy, his neighbor, the golf guy. You know what I mean? So obviously he's emotionally involved in a way, and he's the one who ends up shooting Kedhar Bailey. What's the whole point of these investigations? People just think they're a joke. Every citizen just thinks it's a joke. I think in their head... It's to do something after the big outcry over Catherine Hegarty and to reassure people that the cops acted in their capacity as police and didn't do something. We're looking at it. We're checking. It's all okay. As far as Catherine Hegarty, she's not the one that that guy called a ninja nun, is she? She might be. I guess- I You'll find out when you do that. That's the one yes. I always remember. Right. She but, wasn't a nun. And, and I know you're going to do that. I know you're going to do that one. But I just want to say about that story. What makes you think it's okay to go on someone's property and camp? If it were me and I was on backwards property and someone came out with a gun, I'd just leave. And I Assholes. probably wouldn't call the cops. My thought. Like, oh, shit. I was on this person's property. My thought. And again, I'm going to do the episode, so I don't want to get into a whole thing. But one thing I read is the cops knew her as being mentally unstable, blah, blah, blah. If she was a man, if they had been John Hegarty instead of Catherine. Yeah. They went over there with the intent of arresting her without even hearing her side of the story. She didn't shoot at anybody. She just scared the pants off these mass holes who were trespassing on her property after she asked them to leave. I, I just don't understand. But oh, let's drag bu- down this. Oh, here's a chain. I'm going to Here's a chain. Anyway, let's unlock it later. and go on this person's private property. It all boils down to guns. Yes. And body cameras. I'm also, telling you. This attitude, and we're talking about a lot of Maine's population, this attitude by police and newspaper editors and other people that if somebody lives a life like Amber or Kedhar, that they're somehow not worthy of being considered human beings and being treated like human well, beings. yeah, like the newspaper reporting. Yeah. They're victims Golf of pro house burglarized. Oh, by the way, oh, two by the scumbags way. died. See, I mean, that's embarrassing. Because you, you weren't there. Yeah. The well, if thing... I was there, I would have been. Doug, why aren't you calling the families of these kids who were shot? 
And everyone be like, oh, there goes Maureen again. Right, there goes Maureen again. She's always just it's... overbearingly trying to force <laughs> people to do these ridiculous things. As far as like, do you know how many times when I was at work, when I used to work at Lowe's and home, especially at Lowe's, because I, I worked there later after GoPros were a thing. I used to think, God, I would love to wear a camera on my somewhere where you could see the things people come up and say to me and do i know just to show how fucking nuts <laughs> a day is i know sitting here i don't understand why I, they're so resistant to i it. do understand because well, i right do now, they're what they say for our bullshit i don't know what they say goes right now I that know. they can talk to people and treat people any way they want and tell stories that nobody can dispute a lot of the police shootings the past few years, the only, you know, the outcry has been because somebody's filmed it with a cell phone. I know, it's I, true. It was his name Chance, the one that at, right, down at the, um, the, yeah. Union Station He's one Plaza. of the three black people they've shot. Yes, either he was developmentally disabled or had some kind of mental illness, too. He was acting erratically, but he had been doing stuff earlier, too. I can't remember much about that one. But I just remember reading the stories about it, thinking it was something that probably could have been somebody could have stopped him earlier before he went and bought that pellet gun. He was doing stuff and right. there's just no help for people. There's, there's no, no help. There's that. no help people and there. There's no help for people. And there's, and there's no will to help them. Right. And then even, as I said, Amber was mistreated from the second yeah. Kevin Ireland walked up to that car. They're so rich in detail on some of the things noticing the footprints in the snow and all this kind of stuff and yet we don't know if the car was still running we don't know why she was left in the car why the keys were left in the car i mean what are they morons yeah they are they're a bunch they sound like a bunch of dipshits yeah they I are. mean, I know it's easy for me to say I don't no, do their job, they, but come on. They are. They're a bunch of macho who would rather march around with their guns and do that shit. And meanwhile, but I could go on and on. I'm, but, I, you know, if that were my daughter, I would just be, I would be I so angry. I feel anyway. bad. But, but also, I was just thinking there wasn't enough detail because I was picturing the scene. And you know what it's like when you get like a foot of snow. Especially in the woods and stuff. It's like, did the guy really go through the... I mean, could you... I don't know. You know, this was 5 o'clock on a Friday, but the photographer who worked that shift at the Morning Sentinel (laughs) should have had his ass over there. They're chasing around in the woods looking for a burglary suspect. For most of my journalism career, that would trigger sending a reporter and a photographer over there. Right. But anyways, well, thank you for that story. That was very good. So, do you have an NNW? Yes. <laughs> I have okay. a book. Okay. I actually listened to the audio version of this book, and it's the newest book by Robert Galbraith, no. otherwise known as Jake. I'm not going to give you any spoilers, okay. otherwise known as J.K. Rowling. The book is 
a very long book because the running time of, I think it was over 30 hours. I'm not sure, but I can tell you Ulysses by James Joyce is 27 hours, the audio book. So it's a pretty long book, but it's great. I mean, all her, her books are great. No. Bad reenactments, obviously, no. Narrative cliches, no. That's one thing I like about her. No, I'm not going to say no. I'm sorry. I'm going to say I'm going to take a point off. Ooh, wow. You went from no to a point off. Yeah, I started thinking about it. In general, no. Her storylines don't, they aren't predictable. But as I've said before, if you read the strike books... His ex, all right, Charlotte. Wife, and were they married? I don't yes. think they were ever married. Or were they married? Yeah. Well, whether they were married or engaged, I don't know if they ever actually got married. I always found her a cliche. She's a bitter, and she supposedly beautiful, but she's but she's troubled, and it's like, yeah, but she's also has doesn't seem to have any redeeming qualities. She's one dimensional. She's very right. one dimensional, and just having. The character having an ex that is an annoying person that you can't understand why they're with that person always bothers me because if you were with someone like he was supposedly with her for like 16 years or so, if you're with somebody that long, there's got to be something good about them. And so that's the one thing. And the other one was the character of Pat. That's their office manager or whatever. She's got a raspy smoker's voice and she's this quirkyish, you know, older lady. She does get a little bit less of a caricature in this book, but she still is. Mm. And it just bugs me. So I am taking a point off for that. Racial gender obtuseness, I'm taking a point off. Mm. She could have more characters of color in her books and she doesn't. Strike has a half sister who is a mixed race that is in this book and he's met her in like the last book i think um and he gets along with her and he likes her but there really aren't i don't know i just feel like right it could be it's more. not hard to make characters black or you know latino and i feel like some of the um american indian i also feel like some of the even though she's a jk rowling is a woman i feel like some of the relationship things are kind of sexist or not sexist just well women can be just just as cliche you know strike being you know right screwing around all the time and blah 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 and just the um constant obstacles to him and robin i don't know if i want them to be together or not but at least it's gone on a long time but a lot of readers my rule with my books not that i'm jk rowling obviously or i wouldn't be sitting in a 52 degree living room talking to you on a dented microphone but it was i'm not going to go more than three books without getting them together yeah because but, why I mean, drag good, it out there's good reasons for it and she doesn't you know they're not always like pining for each other and but still will they or won't they get sold yeah. you can only string readers along so long Lack of good visuals doesn't really apply, but her, obviously, her writing is really good. I mean, you you can picture everything. Missing pieces, no. Her plots are, I don't know how she does it, how she comes out with a book this friggin' long that has interwoven plots. You know, things are happening, but when you get to the end of her books... You don't have any questions about, or there's nothing that's like, 
you know, oh, I saw that coming or why, okay, what happened to this storyline? Inaccuracy anachronisms. This takes place about 10 years ago. It's during the Brexit vote. So what was that? Like 10, 2012, maybe? Yeah. Whatever anachronisms would be very slight. I didn't notice anything. Yeah. It would be mainly what kind of phone you'd have and stuff like that. Right. Because they change so fast. Storytelling, obviously, she's a great storyteller. Freshness, yes, it's fresh. I have no problem with her freshness. There's no repetition. She doesn't really beat the drum. This story is about the main thing in it is that this cult one of their clients is trying to get his son out of this cult there's a lot about cults and if if you've read a lot about different cults or if you watched leah revenue's show a lot of it is going to be familiar to you but it's interesting just seeing it from the inside kind of even though it's a fake cult and then just watching like I was watching that love. What was that one we watched? Twin Souls or whatever. Twin. You watched it. Escaping Twin Flames. I watched Um, the one on the other network, which was desperately seeking. Oh yeah, I've got to watch. I was watching that while I was reading this book, and I was like, "So many things are similar." I gave it an eight, but my criticisms are so. Right. I'm gonna get it on ebook. It's so good. I like really long books. Uh, Me too. If they're good. Elizabeth and I was George. sad when it was ended. Yeah, yeah, I liked Elizabeth George. Even some Stephen King books with their older right. ones. The stand. Um, yeah, but it has to be a good book. Right, it has to. You know. So, yeah. anyways, That's I gave good. her an I'll eight. have to read it. I'm, I'm I don't want to give any spoilers, but Thank if you. you and if you have not read any of the books, you should. You should start with the first one, The Cuckoo's Calling, and just read them all. Right. And I know there's a TV show which we reviewed. And like, but the books are, are different a hundred times and that. And I know that there are people, and maybe I shouldn't even get into this, but for instance, the um a bookseller I know is like, I don't wanna oh, stock that book of her, because of yeah. what she tweeted about LGBTQ. And she doubled And my response to that is look at the Shells in this bookstore, are you going to take off every book? I'm looking right in front of me at a book by Bill O'Reilly. You I know. know what I mean? All right. Yeah. And what about James Patterson? And, I you know. know, I know people have an issue with what she tweeted. I'm not defending it. It's, I think it showed a lack of understanding, not maliciousness. Yes. But if you start parsing every author, d- just don't bother to read books because you're not going to. And um, I will say, too, that she, whatever she said which I don't want to really get into. Yeah, I don't either. Her books don't, they don't have that kind of an attitude. I would say, I guess there really aren't any trans people in the book that I know of, but... She's probably better off staying away from that. I know. But anyway... She's damned no matter what she... And now we're going to say goodbye. We'll have another episode in a couple weeks. Yes, and I've got a good one. Good. Don't tell me what it is, because I like to be surprised. Okay. You will be. I am. Good, Okay. And is there anything else we need to tell people? Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. Yay. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Are you all set? Are you all Um, No, I'm dealing with something here. I knocked oh. over a okay. little thing of water and I don't have anything. Just let me grab a towel okay. just a sec. And it went in my shoes. <laughs> No, I don't know.
Can you hear it? She's yes. screaming at me. Why? 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 Honey! She's still yelling. I don't uh, know what she's yelling about. Because you said... I'm sorry, Momo. Mm. Just a minute. Got everything. Is your furnace working? More or less. Can you hear me? <laughs> okay. Can you hear me? Because you don't have your headphones on. Hi. Why do you try to talk to me when you don't have your headphones on? I don't know. Are you ready now? Because I want you to be able to listen to my story. I will. I just... I won't. <laughs> my socks are... <laughs> Why are you... My... What is going on? Why? What is... Everything... <laughs> just... It's a mess do you need to change? Do you need to change your socks? No, I'm fine. Uh, are we ready? Because I really need you to be able to listen to my story. <laughs> yes. Um, let me just, I just need to get this out of, away from me. I don't want to look at that anymore. I don't understand what is going on. This place is like a tornado hit it. Okay. Well, I I don't know what to tell you about that. I mean, what? <laughs> I mean, is it that much of a mystery? No. I didn't okay. say I didn't know why. I just said. Yeah, you I... said you didn't know what was going on. <laughs> I don't. Why does it? Why does it look like I'm looking sideways? <laughs> I don't know why. Because your because your monitor must be tilted or something. Okay. Are you ready? I want you to be ready. I am. My problem is that's what he said. I have a cold, and I keep, yeah, I know okay. that's what your problem is. <laughs> okay, yes. I'm, okay, let me cough first. You know. <clears throat> I must have gotten that right from the story. That was a story, so I'm sure he had allegedly looking for a man instead of looking for a man who'd allegedly stolen Probably. because he's an idiot. Get a pop. We'll find out when. Yeah, we will. Won't we? You better cut that out. We'll see.